Before we get back to today's show, here's a quick word from HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Could it be Don or John or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. And a full 360 view of every customer. So your go-to-market team can keep up on the pulse of accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Brain, your podcast for how to grow your business today and in the future. I am your host, Kit Bodner. I am joined by a teetotaling Irishman named Kieran Flanagan today. What's up, Kieran? How you doing, man? I'm fresh off YouTube, listening to this new Eminem and Snoop Dogg track, 40s. Collabo. Get is it, it amazing? I saw it's you actually, sent it to it, me, but I haven't listened to it yet. Is it sweet? You know, everything about it is amazing. I'm a fan <laughs> of both. But the actual collaboration with Bored Apes is actually pretty Does cool. Does the Bored well. Ape part make you hate it more or like it more? Yeah, it makes me cringe, but also enjoy it. There's like equal amounts of cringe and equal amounts of enjoyment. <laughs> I don't know which one is greater. All right, I'm going to watch it later and uh, I'll report back on a future pod. We are also really fortunate here to be joined by an awesome guest today, Peter Yang who is the founder of Odyssey DAO, which has the goal of onboarding the next million users onto Web3, is here to talk to us about media, Web3, and the future of the internet. Peter, welcome to the show. So awesome to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me here. Okay, so Peter, for folks who don't know you, give us the background. Mm -hmm. Like, why Web3? Why Odyssey DAO? Like, give us a little bit of insight as to why you're on this mission. So I've been kind of bouncing around different Web2 companies, currently work at Reddit. And on the side, about two years ago, I started writing a blog on the creator economy. You know, I'm a bit of a creator myself. I have a Twitter presence, I run my blog and so on. And I really believe in the mission to kind of let people make a living online. So that got me started uh, looking into Web3 about a year ago. And I started to realize that Web3 may very well be the future of the creator economy. If trust can be set by code and by the blockchain, then creators and their communities and their fans can finally own the upside from their work as opposed to rely on these big platforms. So that got me really into researching Web3. And the more I learned about it, the more fascinating it got. And I figured, hey, why don't I bring my audience and bring my community so we can learn about it together? And that's why I started Odyssey DAO. So Odyssey DAO is a community where we're all learning together and we're all writing these like very concise, explaining like I'm five guides on Web3. Peter, can you explain to our listeners what a DAO is and why you chose a DAO? In a Web2 world, you would have maybe created a blog, maybe you know hired a couple of freelancers and started to kind of build out that media site that Odyssey is. Maybe explain a little bit about what is a DAO and then why did you pick DAO as the kind of model to build this media company? So a DAO is officially defined as Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And it's actually, in my opinion, not a very good name what actually <laughs> happens in a DAO. But I mean, the ideal here is that, you know, you have a bunch of people come together. The promise is that anyone can join a DAO 
putting some work to create a website, write a blog post or something, get recognized in the community, and then get compensated for their work. So you don't have to go off and like, you know, get like an MIT degree or like, you know, go work for Facebook first before you can prove that you have value. And that has kind of happened to a certain extent in, in Odyssey Dell. There's like people from different countries who have come in and just started contributing. And I recognized them and brought them into their core team. But at least for Odyssey, it's, it's still very much being driven by a core team of like 10 people, even though the community has like 6,000 people in the community. I just don't think like 6,000 part-time people running in 20 different directions works that well. You still need a leadership in your organization, right? And why I picked Dell, I mean, to be honest with you, it, it wasn't like super planned out. But I think one of the best ways to learn about Web3 is to actually do Web3 stuff. So I yes. figured, why not try it out? Why not try out this DAO and see if it works? Right. Yeah. right. How, just really quickly, how do people get compensated within Odyssey for writing content? Yeah, so when, when we started Odyssey last year, we uh, did a crowdfund and, and we were able to raise like 100K. So that was the money that we had in the treasury. And subsequently, we also got a bunch of Web3 companies like Polygon and Phantom to sponsor us. So there's like a little bit more money in the treasury. And how people get compensated is at the end of a quarter or a season, you know, the core team talks about who was like a major contributor and we make like a little spreadsheet and we figure out, you know, how much ETH or USDC each person should get, right? And then just to like be a DAO, we also put it up for a snapshot vote. So there's a bunch of people who was part of the initial treasury or like putting work who hold like Odyssey governance tokens. Mm. So, so they can vote yes or no if the compensation plan should go through. Most of the time, like the vote is yes. <laughs> so, so then assuming everybody votes yes, then I send people the ETH from the treasury. Right. So you raise some money and people are getting paid from the money you raise. Like another common way for DAOs to pay members of the DAOs or writers within their DAOs. I think, I don't know if friends were benefits, but there's some other examples. There's a newsletter called Dirt, although I think they sell NFTs. There's a couple of other examples mm -hmm. of media companies within Web3 who are DAOs and they issue a token and they pay yeah. people through their token. That's cool because a lot of other media companies that are DAOs, what I've seen is they have different ways in how they pay their members. And so there's mm -hmm. some like friends with benefits, they kind of issue a token and then they pay members from within the DAO on that token. Although friends with benefit, actually you need the token to get into the community, but there's other DAOs I've seen within media on Web3 where they pay their members through that token. So if you write content, they issue that token to you a certain amount of it, which is great when the token is doing well and there's liquidity in the market, much, much harder to kind of scale and make work when liquidity exits the market. So I guess, you know, if I'm building a DAO and I want to get paid for my time, what are the benefits in doing that versus just being a freelancer? Like just being on Upwork, being on Fiverr and issuing my services like through one of those Web2 platforms? Mm, number one, hopefully you've built a deeper relationship with the community and the DAO itself. And number two, depending on how you get compensated, like you can actually get ownership stake in the DAO itself, mm, right? Yep. On Odyssey side, like we, we try to compensate on USDC because it's like actually has stable prices, but we also have our own token. It doesn't have any liquidity, so it's purely a governance token. But if, if you do good work for DAO, you also get some Odyssey tokens and you can be a stakeholder when we have those votes about like, oh, should we do a course? Should we pay people this amount? You can actually participate in the vote and the governance of the DAO. Which I think is really interesting, Peter. You know, I think the rap with traditional freelance work has been like, oh, I'm so disconnected from this person or this business that I'm helping. 
I'm just kind of getting tasks handed to me, which maybe is what I want. Maybe it's what I, I don't want. What you're basically, I think, advocating for is like, if that's what you don't want and you want more of an involvement in the work that you're doing without having to be a founder or maybe be a full-time employee or something like that, then a DAO actually gives you much more of that with the transparency, the governance, the ability to inform what's actually going to get done. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Like as a freelancer, you're just like a consultant or like a mercenary, you're just doing work and then leaving. Like, I mean, talent is talent, right? Like in, in a DAO, if there's someone who's super talented, I want to retain that person and get that person to continue contributing to the community. So giving that person governance tokens, making that person feel valued is something that like a DAO can do that a freelancer might not get. One more thing on that, Peter, which, you know, as somebody who's run a DAO for a while, I haven't run a DAO, I'd be interested. It's like, that's all very transparent. And so like, like, how does that just not go out of control where it's like, oh, I want to retain this awesome person, the DAO contributor. So I'm going to give them extra government's token, extra money, control, what have you. How does mm-hmm. everybody not see that and say, hey, I want more? Like, how do you keep the balance across this community to engage yeah. in this purpose? Yeah. So like, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out as I go along. Yeah, I, know. I, I think everybody is. That's um, why I'm interested to hear what you've learned, you know? Yeah. I think number one, like most DAOs have a pretty shitty onboarding process. It's really hard to just like <laughs> join a Discord server of 6,000 other people and actually figure out where to contribute, right? So the people yeah. who actually do end up contributing in a meaningful way are people who are really motivated and really want to be part of this DAO, you know? So all of a sudden, there's only like maybe 20 people who actually contribute in a meaningful way. And it's important for you to set some guidance, like even in a DAO, like it's important to say like, hey, here's kind of like the three main projects that we want to focus on this quarter or something like that. So people just don't run in like 20 different directions again, right? But if people contribute and they're actually good, then, you know, like I said, talent is talent. And like, I will do everything possible to retain that per person. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit controversial, but I'd rather have 10 really amazing contributors in a DAO than like 200 part-time contributors. Yeah. yeah. Can I bring this all the way back to something that I love to try to relate to at all times is MMA. <laughs> <laughs> you love MMA. So. I'm going somewhere with this, right? <laughs> so, Please. So I love MMA. I love boxing. I love MMA. There's a really successful organization in MMA called UFC. It's a fascinating story, the UFC, right? They were bailed out, bought for a couple of million dollars and went on to sell that company for $4 billion. But actually where I was going with this was how fighters are compensated. And it's very controversial. The way fighters are compensated in MMA is you get half of your pay for turning up and you get half of your pay if you win, right? There's called a win bonus. And that's pretty controversial because they're like, well, if you've done the work, you turn up, then you should get paid the full amount of money. But when I think about Web2 freelancing and Web3 DAO, I kind of correlate it to that, which is like freelance, you show up and you do the work and you get paid, but you're not getting any of the upside from that work, right? You're freelance. Whereas in a DAO, you're making the bet that there's a win bonus. That, that is actually one of the core utilities in Web3 is you get a stake within that, yes. either whether through an NFT, you I have a seat, you can resell the seat. And so there's actually a win bonus there. And I think that's what's fascinating about Web3. And that's why people within Web3 and DAOs will pick the things that they're more interested in, will pick the things that align to their mission, to their purpose, and will be much more incentivized to see those things win. When I hear all this, there's no core utilities for Web3. Like it's not, like it's all kind of just vaporware. That's a real utility. You can have ownership in something and you can resell that ownership if you help to make that thing much, much more successful. Yeah, exactly. I think the core utility here is that these are just tools that bring a group of people together yes. who care about the same mission and then they can actually get shared upside if they work towards this mission together, right? 
And, and like that can be any kind of mission. You can like save the environment. You can do whatever. Well, Peter, on that, like you're somebody, you know, at the at the top, you're like, hey, I've worked in a lot of Web two companies. I'm one to learn Web three. I started Odyssey DAO. Like, is it true in practice? Like, I don't know. I've worked with a lot of freelancers, and the quality of work is variable, right? Because again, yeah. they don't have that upside. They don't have the context, the transparency. Is the work that somebody does for Odyssey DAO? on average, mm-hmm. higher quality than like freelance work that you've had in the you know past roles or opportunities in your life? Like, how's that compare? It's really hard to match interests of talent. Like, you know, Odyssey is kind of like a media portal with a bunch of education guys, right? And like, not everyone is good at writing this stuff in a mm-hmm. concise way. So in some cases, I had to tell people like, hey, the, the stuff that you wrote is like not really good enough. Like, we need to make that much more concise. In some cases, like, you know, talent just emerges out of the ether. Like, Alan was a person who was like really into DeFi and he just like completely revamped all of our DeFi guides and, and did a really great, great job. He knows a lot more about DeFi than I do. So that kind of person, like you want to try to retain as much as possible, right? You want to like, here, here's a bunch of governance tokens. Here's some USDC. Keep doing this. And hey, why don't you join our core team too as we plan out the future of the DAO? Yeah. Web2, so this vast amount of opportunities for people within search to aggregate things together and own parts of the Web2 real estate. And actually, I, I've met founders who are like incredibly rich from just building great search sites to own parts of the market, like the credit card market. NerdWallet is a really great ex- example of that. There is such mm-hmm. a hot opportunity when I'm Web3 right now where you can kind of build play-to-learn aggregator sites. Because what's interesting about Web3 is no one's building like a Web2 aggregator where you can go and learn about HTTP and TCP and all these kind of protocols. And someone's sponsoring you to build those guys because they want free advertising on their protocol or on their app. In Web3, there's this like real moment in time where these kind of sites, and I think Odyssey does a little bit of this, where there's companies provide incentives to actually use their app. And so they'll actually sponsor sites that have their guides. And then people can go through, use those guides, and they get incentivized to use the apps by getting some of those coins. And so there's yeah. an opportunity for the best people in search to win that space. Like, how do I just commoditize that space? How do I make sure all of my guides are appearing? Like, there's a huge opportunity. Maybe speak to a little bit about that play to learn within Web3. Mm-hmm. That's very different from Web2 in that you have brands who will actually pay you a little bit of their coin to learn how to use their protocol or DAP. Do you think that's a moment in time thing? Like that's a here for a little while, not for a long time? Or how do you think about that in terms of Web3 and helping to build companies? I mean, the space is still new, right? And I think all the Web3 companies and protocols are looking for two things. They're looking for developers and they're looking for users. The companies that focus on bringing them developers like Build Space and these other companies, they're all doing very well. And there's also some companies out there focused on bringing them users. Rabbit Hole is a good example, right? Like Exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, if you do use Quest, then you get some tokens and then theoretically you'll go use the platform more. I think the challenge with the learn to earn thing is, is like people will just game it. So like mm-hmm. if you're not careful, people will just like build bots or like just game the stuff just to get the tokens and to continue to speculate. So they're actually not interested in learning the stuff. They just want to get the tokens that, that you get from these quests, right? So that's why I think instead of just like kind of on demand going through your own pace, ideally you kind of learn together with a community. Then you can suss out who is actually legitimately trying to learn versus who is just trying to like uh, speculate, game the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The ownership and speculation with Web3 is going to cause a lot of headaches in terms of trying to measure any kind of real, like authentic users within ecosystems and apps. I'll give you a really good example. In product-led growth companies, one of the things you usually do is when you've been operating long enough, you kind of do regression analysis to look at how people use your products within the first number of days 
And what are the commonalities and features that they use before they upgrade? So you can build your onboarding to try to get people to do more of those things. Like Facebook has been kind of cited as the aha moment was when they saw you needed X number of connections within the first seven days. And if you did that, you become a much stickier user. You know that you're a product manager for Reddit. And so we've seen some instances that Airtable are a good example. They did, did this, it was really cool, where they obviously figured out what usage mapped to users becoming customers and they incentivized mm-hmm. you with discounts. So you would be using things and it would say, hey, install the app and we'll give you a 10% discount on the paid program. Hey, do this thing and we'll give you a 5% discount when you upgrade. And the thing that they're doing is they're incentivizing you to the usage that correlates to you becoming a customer at higher rates. Now, the problem is when you start to incentivize someone to do something, you've completely changed the dynamics of that thing, right? Because it's unclear now if that is still the thing that will correlate to usage that becomes customers or you've just incentivized that so they're only doing it because they want the money. And that's the problem Web3 is trying to sort through yep. like who are the users and what they find useful. Be really interested to get your take, Peter, because you're a product manager, like sorting through the usage of apps and what people truly find useful versus what people are doing because they're just incentivized to do that thing because they're speculating on the coin. Yeah, that is a big problem with Web3 because everything's a token that can go up and down. So everything is like kind of like trying to make a quick buck, like first, right? Let me give you an example. So when I raised the initial funding for Odyssey, I wanted to get the community to buy the NFTs first, but somehow it got leaked. And like a bunch of people from like China and these other countries started buying the NFTs <laughs> and started coming into the community and be like, hey, when are you going to provide liquidity for this token? Because I want to flip it, you know? <laughs> so like, it, it just like, if you're not careful, it would just like completely ruin the vibe of this like learning community. I think what I've seen with projects like NFT projects now is that they use pre-mint solutions where like they have like a allow list where they actually try to get community members or people who actually care about their vision to get on the allow list instead of just having a, like an open sale, you know? Mm. And like that has like worked really well for projects. It's kind of like putting people on your cap table, right? It's very important to have the right people on your cap table. It's, it's actually okay not to sell immediately as long as you can get the right people to buy your tokens or buy your NFTs. That's more important. That's really interesting. You know, Peter, you started Odyssey DAO. You said a DAO was a really good way to learn about Web3. Now you've yeah. done it for a while. Is that true? Mm-hmm. And for people listening out here, vast majority listening to the show, never maybe even used Discord, let alone been a part of a DAO. Like, what mm-hmm. are the top three things you've learned about the world of Web3 over the, the journey of Odyssey DAO? I think number one, start with the optimistic stuff. It is true, like the promise in a DAO that someone can step up and really make a, a huge contribution, right? Like in the past few months, like I had a baby. So I had to like step away from Aussie DAO a little bit. And, and like people in the community, people on the core team mm-hmm. really stepped up to like run the DAO and like make things happen in my absence. And like that probably would not happen if I was like CEO of some company, you know? So that, that's not number one. Number two, I think it comes down to like coordinating people and it's like really hard to coordinate people. <laughs> like just, just because you have some token or some like governance snapshot thing, that doesn't magically all of a sudden allow people to work together incredibly well. You know, I think the negative of having a DAO is that if you have a startup, you just have 10 people to coordinate. And like those 10 people are like full-time focused on this stuff. And, and in a DAO, you have like 6,000 people and they're like mm. coming in, in and out. And just just like trying to answer their questions or like trying to figure out how they contribute takes up like a ton of time. So it's just like a lot more people to coordinate in a DAO. And I think if anything, like from my experience, the third thing I will say is like this whole Web3 versus Web2 narrative is kind of like messed up in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Everything has like pros and cons. And I really respect people who actually take a more realistic view of this whole space uh, and are like Same. more honest about the pros and cons, right? And what do you think the pros and cons are? Everybody's got their list, but how do you think about it? Okay. I mean, at, at a very high level, I mentioned how the promise of Web3 is that 
blockchains and code can set trust so that people can like, you know, trust each other and like own the upside from their work. So that's the vision. But what's happening today is that there's like a shit ton of scams and like things going on that's like really ruined the vibe of the space. <laughs> well, so, so, and, and somehow eroded yeah. the trust that it was supposed to bring, right? Yeah, it's like just like crazy stuff happening almost every single day, right? And I think that's really unfortunate. It's not a very mature industry, but at the minimum, the people who are exploring the space can be honest about its drawbacks. And like, if you're honest about the problems, then you can actually try to figure out the solutions, right? If you just kind of like assume that this stuff will just go away by itself, it's not going to happen. Each time like a Luna happens or like Celsius, like some of this stuff happens, you're like screwing like millions of regular people, right? It's actually 100% against the mission to onboard more people to Web3. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> yeah, that's the part of the space that like I think kind of like brings me down a little bit. Isn't the problem with all of this? I'm interested to get both of your thoughts on this. Incentives create behaviors. Behaviors yeah. don't create incentives. That's like if you're leading a team, like if you always say this, right? Yeah. Setting the correct incentives is the most important thing of leadership, like making sure that your team are incentivized by the right things. Mm -hmm. Isn't the problem with three is like the incentives are always going to lead to behavior that is corruptible. Again, it's everything is predicated around liquidity and money, right? Mm -hmm. Every action, everything you do is liquidity and speculation. And I wonder, is there a version of web three without tokens? Mm -hmm. Is there benefits to like the decentralized part without a lot of the incentive part? I, I see the token stuff as just like a new tool that you can use to motivate people. <laughs> and like, I think the thing is like, this is brand new, right? So like, it's almost like designing an entire new economy mm. and trying to figure it out. Like if you're just paying like, let's say a hundred bucks for like an online course that I taught, it's like very simple, right? You just pay the money and you get the value. But if you buy NFT instead, get access to my course, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more complicated. Like you have to think about, I mean, you get the upside, but if token goes down, you might get annoyed. What happens if I issue more empty supply? Does it devalue your original token? It's just like a whole bunch of other things to figure out. And I guess most creators probably don't want to bother with this, but if you've actually figured it out, it could be incredibly powerful. Like some of the projects that we've seen, like Kevin Rose's Moonbirds and like some of his other stuff is doing incredibly well because I feel like they're designing the incentives in the right way. And my guess is that a lot of people who buy those tokens are not pure speculators. They actually care about the long-term value of the community. Well, that's a really good point, Peter. And what I'd add to your question around, do we need tokens? This is kind of my shorthand for your question, Kieran, is like, the tokens aren't the issue. Speculation is the issue, right? And I think what we haven't fully grokked around speculation, if you look at the art market, for example, like if you go buy a painting, most art dealers now make you basically sign an agreement that you won't resell that painting for like three to five years. And if you do, that they have the first right to buy it back from you because they're right. basically trying to control the speculation of the market. Yep. You look at the infrastructure, right? Between the stock market having hours. Like there's so many things in our society that's about controlling speculation. And I think one of the challenges in giving everybody ownership and kind of that win bonus that you talked about, Karen, is that it lets speculation kind of run rampant. And so I don't know if the tokens are the issue as so much as how do you think about better managing speculation in the mm -hmm. future? Yeah. I feel like a lot of people in Web3, the people who actually buy the tokens are speculators, people who want to get, oh, yeah. right? Absolutely. And, and like, you have to, I don't know, change the narrative or like actually have more projects of actual utility to bring the people who actually care about building something valuable <laughs> than, right. than just gambling. Yeah. That's my entire point is, mm -hmm. let's look at the story of Axie Infinity, right? 
Mm. Like if you look at what happened to Axie, again, everything is really good when you have liquidity. Gary, can you give people a little background yeah, so, on uh, so Axie and everything? Axie Infinity sure. was the kind of poster child of the play to earn games. And at, and at Pinnacle, there was a high portion of people from places like the Philippines earning more from Axie Infinity than the average salary w- was within those companies. So you would look at that and you say, wow, we we truly are creating a new form of creator and economy that kind of lives in the in the Web3 land. And they got a ton of investment from A16. And a lot of people would say, wow, that like that is the kind of path to how play to earn games and that economy will work in the future. Now that looks great because new user growth is on fire because the incentives are perfectly mapped to users wanting to join that to use it because the coin is going up in value. People are incentivized then to join, go play the game because they're getting a, a bunch of money. Existing players are earning more money because new players are joining. So the NFTs that they own within the game are going up in value because there's more demand. Mm-hmm. And so when your user growth is predicated on being completely interlinked with the incentives that you have for, to join those, which are monetary incentives, like going back to the early days, right? When PayPal first grew their company, one of the ways that they grew was given every new account $25 to spend and send to someone else. That was 8% of their growth. If that was 100% of their growth, at some point that company would have died. Axie Infinity is no different. There's incentives there for you to actually play the game that are linked to monetary benefits. Now, what happens when the crypto market falls and liquidity exits the market, the value of the coin decreases. New users' growth slows because there's no other incentives because the pull of actually using the game does not outweigh the actual spec on the coin and the want to earn that coin. Now, NFT prices are dropping within the game because existing users, there's not enough new demand coming in for those NFTs and everything starts to crumble, right? Because people are not there for the core usage. And so my point on Mm -hmm. tokens is, are tokens the primary reason you should join and use an app or like a secondary or a third reason? And to your point, Kip, like you could have vesting periods, you could have lockup periods. If apps are built with tokens as being the core incentive to join that, it becomes very hard to figure out, does this just die when liquidity exits the market? Yeah, it's just kind of like buying a stock, right? Like you don't buy a stock just hoping the price will go up. The, the company behind the stock actually needs to produce real output and real value. Yes. So like uh, with Axie, I, I actually have a blog upcoming about Axie and, you know, it, it played play the audience of Ponzi's game. But like, I actually played Axie myself for like a couple of days. And like, uh, honestly, like it wasn't that fun, right? So like I people are just playing the game, I feel like just to make money. Right. So the, the minute the money goes away, they're not going to play anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, the argument you two are making, which is really smart, is that money needs to be secondary, not primary. It's right. really yeah. the argument you're making. You have to have value, amazing experience. And so if you're a marketer, you're at a company right now, and you're just thinking even beyond Web3, right? Like if your primary value prop for somebody to talk to your sales rep is giving them a Starbucks gift card, man, mm-hmm. how do you think that's going to go? Right. Like it doesn't right. even have anything to relate. A web three is not, it's not just specific to that. It's anytime where you are leading with the pure financial incentive, then you are just setting yourself up for a crash as soon as that financial incentive goes away. That is what we're talking about, but I think really exacerbated in the world of web three. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Could we end on one of my favorite topics? Please. Web3. And I think it's great, Peter, you're on to talk about this topic because you're a product manager and product managers, I think are incredible at figuring out the problems that users care about and to build features to solve those problems and what are problems worth solving and which ones aren't. And so one of the arguments for Web3 is it's decentralized. Mm -hmm. And like, if you look at a lot of brands, again, coming back to how you create a brand, Kip, in terms of like, you know, 
aspirational, transformational versus better mousetrap. The transformational part for a lot of companies is this decentralized. The whole story is, you know, users are sick of centralized platforms, sick of their data being owned by these monopolies, sick of not getting paid for their data, want better security and decentralized apps are the way to go. And you see companies like BitClient and things like that just try to replicate Web2 properties, but just in a decentralized way. And so your mm-hmm. user experience is no better, And but we're decentralized. And <laughs> what Kip and I have kind of talked about in the show, Peter, is, is decentralization really enough of a hot topic for users to switch to Web3 apps that just replicate Web2 functionality when it's not additive in any way? My argument is it's not. Like the average user is not going to care as much about decentralization as they are about functionality and the kind of value of using that product. I would love to get your yeah, take I on don't, that. Yeah, my, my take is that I don't think the average user really gives a shit about decentralization. No, yes. that's, that's, they don't. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But I think they'll care. Like, for example, if, if you tell me, oh, I'm building YouTube that's decentralized, I, I won't give a shit. But if you tell me, hey, instead of YouTube taking 30% of your money because of this thing that you now own, you, you can keep like 90% of your money. Then I will care. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's push on that real quick. That's the right angle from the creator side. That same example, right? Like with the decentralized YouTube example. Mm-hmm. Don't you also have to make it meaningfully better on the consumer side too? Yeah. So the, the, the argument would be like, hey, okay, let's, let's take one example. Like on Patreon, if the user like pays, you know, a hundred bucks to get access to the creator's content or something, like mm-hmm. the user doesn't actually get any real upside. Maybe the creator will give the user some stickers or something, <laughs> like a t-shirt, <laughs> right? Right. But otherwise, there's no upside. But if I buy your very first YouTube video as an NFT that I now own, and then you become super famous, theoretically, that NFT should grow a lot in value. So maybe I can become wealthy too from just from doing 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 that. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're, so, you're making the argument that both the creator and the consumer should be able to achieve a lot more value and that, that the value from the creator gets passed to the consumer much more in Web3, whether it's decentralized or not, just by the nature of, of ownership. Yeah, you kind of cut out the middleman. And, and, and you know there is a negative to that in that the creator also has to share revenue with yeah. the user. Not all creators want to do that. But theoretically, by cutting out the middleman, both creators and users can earn more. Yeah. I just don't think users are going to care about that. Enough users would have to care about that to have a huge audience for that platform, for that creator to get paid enough money to want to use the platform in the first place. So you really need a lot of users. And I think users care about functionality, like broad average consumers care about functionality. And I think coming back to what some of the core stuff that we've talked about in this show is like finding true use cases that are unique to Web3 that can kind of break out and have mass adoption because they truly solve a problem that is not currently being solved in an efficient way or not being solved at all by Web2 because BitClight was something similar, right? Like, hey, you're doing all this stuff on Twitter and people are engaging with your stuff, but you don't get paid for that. And so you can earn a token and then you can turn that token into real money. There's such a small subset of people that will have enough engagement for that money to be worth their time. Everyone mm-hmm. else on Twitter gets like one like every month. Why are they there? They're there totally. because of functionality. They're there because they're scrolling the news. And I saw like a very popular Web3 VC on Twitter is like, who's building the Web3 version of Airbnb? I really want to talk to that company. <laughs> what? Why are you what, Why are you spending your, like you're, come on, like there's better things to do with your life. Like don't look for the next Web3 version of Airbnb because it will suck, right? Airbnb yeah. is a phenomenal company. You're not going to build a Web3 version just so you can put some tokens in there. Like, we need to get real about what is worth building and what is not worth building. Regardless of the technology you use, if you're going to do something, a new version of something, it has to be 10x better. Yes. 
right? Yes. That, at the end of the day, for that the, is for the, the customer, case. for the customer, yes. not the for customer the customer has to have a 10 X better, more valuable experience. I do think there's a counter argument to what you said, which is, I, I think a lot of NFT stuff and web three stuff is actually more useful for like the super fans. Like, mm. like it's not useful for like your 1 million YouTube subscribers is more useful for like the thousand people who actually really care about you. Those people, if they buy an NFT, they get the upside, maybe they'll do more work for you and so on and so forth. I, I think that's probably like a better model than, you know, subscriptions or some other stuff. Yeah, I like I that. It's uh, Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans. So like the argument would be mm-hmm. in a Web3 world, your thousand true fans are actually far more profitable because you have way more ways to engage with them and interact with them and then for them to invest in your success, which I really like. I think that's like a, a hot take that uh, I haven't heard before is like, it's more for the smaller groups than the kind of broad masses. Yeah. It's for your 10,000 apes or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but, it, but, it, but it's interesting, right? The uh, web two, if you think about it, was really about the long tail, you know, the mm-hmm. long tail of search results, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the very niche kind of tail of the web, even like the one like on Twitter example you gave. And Web3 is like just creating niche, like smaller groups where you have, you know, again, a thousand, 10,000 passionate fans and, and engage, but you don't have 10 million. You don't have 10 million board ape holders. You have 10,000 board ape holders, right? And I think okay. yeah. that's a very different dynamic than what we've been used to. I mean, so maybe the best of both worlds is just to do Web2 and Web3, right? Like you grow your audience on yes. Web2. And then you get some of them to buy your Web3 NFTs and then you can grow that way. Right. It's not one or the other. I think well, Web3 can be a layer on, on, on Web2. I think the other thing is, it's not that we just haven't built the use cases that Web3 will primarily be amazing for. We haven't even thought of them. We're so early. Like People say, well, crypto has been around for 2009, 2010. No, it hasn't. Like <laughs> that, That's Bitcoin, right? Like The actual layer of Web3 that things are starting to get built on has not been around uh, as long as people think. Maybe five years, uh, maybe maybe a little bit longer. So I think we're still very early in terms of trying to imagine what will get built. That's why it's fascinating. Yeah, hope, hopefully you don't burn too many more returning investors who's actually building yeah. this stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very yeah. cool. This was an amazing conversation. I think that we covered... Some great ground for everybody listening. We took you behind the scenes of a DAO. We talked to you about how decentralized technology doesn't matter. We talked to you more about how ownership matters and that not having cash or or monetary incentives is the primary motivation for somebody to engage with your community is a really, really big and important thing. And so many other things. I want to give a huge thank you to Peter. So thank you so much for joining us and taking us behind the scenes of what it's like to work in Web3 and at Odyssey DAO. And I can't wait to talk to you again in the future. Cool. Thanks so much for the conversation. Yeah, it was fun. Awesome. See everybody next week on Marketing Against the Grain.